Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are continuing with the discussion of Sara'at. I know you're very excited that we have yet another Parsha dedicated to Sara'at. Um, and so, as you know, I tend to jump around a little bit sometimes in the text. I don't necessarily start exactly at the triennial start, but um, so I am going to start at the beginning, and we're going to stay pretty much in the beginning, because um, sometimes I want to jump to the more interesting stuff at the end of the triennial, uh, which this week is normal um, relationship to impurity from discharge from the penis, uh, relationship to impurity from abnormal discharges from the penis same for the vagina and so i know like that it's very compelling but i think we're going to stay with sarat on the house this morning okay so i want to walk us through a commentary because it's not so much that the house is so much more interesting than a penis or a vagina it's more that what the rabbis do with that text is is really, for me, like the beauty of this tradition. Um, and so I want to expose you every time I can. I try to expose you to the, to the times I think they are just brilliant about how they do that so that you gain familiarity and ease and a library of understandings about the way they take one concept and like take it in a whole different direction, but through very careful linkages of text and thought and association with other biblical ideas and other biblical texts. Remember the rabbinic game, the way you become a very clever rabbi in the traditional rabbinic period was that you knew the entire Torah, number one. You knew the whole Torah, and that means not just the five books of Moses, but the entire corpus of the Hebrew scriptures. So uh, five books of Moses, prophets, and the writings, including Psalms, Chronicles, Kings, all that good stuff. You knew all of that so that when you took a verse from Leviticus, you could match it to a verse from Psalms. And because it's all revelation from the only one, they have to have something to do with each other. If the word is used here and the word is used there, And this is the revelation of the great Holy One, the mystery at the heart of reality. They must have something to do with each other. There's no early and no late in Torah. That is one of the tenets of exegesis in our tradition. There's no early or late in Torah, meaning it is not linear. It is circular. And you can read one part before another part and... And, and they all have something to do with each other. So that is how the tradition takes something like sara'at and houses and whatever and finds a way in using Torah to make a commentary that is about how we can live our lives um, informed by a spiritual truth. Okay? They know what they're doing when they do that. They don't pretend right, that that's what Leviticus is talking about. They do believe that all of these texts are related, and they are, where they come out of the same tradition, um, and that they have permission to take them and turn them and weave them together in ways that leave us with a creative spiritual message. 
Um, and the brilliance for me is how they do that. So we're going to, that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Okay. So let's, with no further ado, look at the text. We are at verse 34. And when you get to the land of Canaan, this is God saying to Moshe and Aaron, that I give you as a possession, and I inflict an eruptive plague upon a house in the land you possess. This is Sara'at, right? Negat Sara'at. It's an eruption of Sara'at. The owner of the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, something like a plague has appeared on my house. Why doesn't the person just say Sara'at's on my house? The person doesn't say to the priest, there's Sara'at on my house because it is the priest who diagnoses Sara'at. The person can't say that. All they can say is something that looks like it might be Sara'at is on my house. The priest shall order the house cleared before the priest enters to examine the plague so that nothing in the house may become impure. After that, the priest shall enter to examine the house. There's something in the house. This stuff's in the house. How would it become impure? Like the situation seems to be what the situation is. When the priest declares it impure. Ah, so, right. So, right. The contact's already happened. The stuff's already in the house. And the nega's already on the house. So what is this business about taking everything out so that it doesn't become impure? Because it's not impure until the priest calls it sara'at, right? Okay. This is how we know it's not physical contamination that is concerned. That's how we know. It's because the stuff's already there. They weren't stupid. They weren't any dumber than we are, right? So if the stuff's in the house, it's already been contaminated. If you're worried about physical contamination, right? Clearly, that's not the case. It's not until the priest calls it Sarat that anything, including the house, is impure. And it's impurity they're worried about spreading. And it's not impure until the priest says Sarat. If when he examines the plague, the plague in the walls of the house is found to consist of greenish or reddish streaks that appear to go deep into the wall, the priest shall come out of the house to the entrance of the house and close up the house for seven days. All right, so not sure what's going on, but we're closing it up for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return. If he sees that the plague has spread on the walls of the house, the priest shall order the stones with the plague in them to be pulled out and cast outside the city into an impure place. So you take the stones that are affected, you take them to an impure place, outside the city, right, and get rid of them. The house shall be scraped inside all around, and the coating that is scraped off shall be dumped outside the city in an impure place. That makes sense. They shall take the other stones, they shall, sorry, they shall take other stones and replace those stones with them and take other coating and plaster the house. If the plague again breaks out in the house after the stones have been pulled out and after the house has been scraped and replastered, the priest shall come to examine. If the plague has spread in the house, it is a malignant eruption in the house. It is impure. All right, so I don't love these translations, I must say. 
because it's very confusing. They keep changing the terminology when the terminology in the Hebrew is the same, right? Babait um, saraat, right? So it, it, it's saraat, so the house is tame, it is impure. The house shall be torn down. It's stone and timber and all the coating on the house and taken to an impure place outside the city. Whoever enters the house while it is closed up shall be impure until evening. Whoever sleeps in the house must wash those clothes, and whoever eats in the house must wash those clothes. If, however, the priest comes and sees that the plague has not spread in the house after the house was replastered, the priest shall pronounce the house pure, for the plague has healed. To purge the house, he shall take two birds, cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop. He shall slaughter one bird over fresh water in an earthen vessel. He shall take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the crimson stuff, and the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slaughtered bird and the fresh water and sprinkle on the house seven times. Having purged the house with the blood of the bird, the fresh water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the crimson stuff, he shall set the live bird free outside the city in the open country. Thus he shall make expiation for the house and it shall be pure. All right, here the word chiper is used. We've talked about chiper, kapara, atonement, expiation. Um, so clearly expiation does not have to do with the house having done something wrong, <laughs> right? Like even they knew that. So it is a very interesting um, concept that expiation is made for a house that has suffered sara'at because there's some understanding that something's happened to the house that requires the house to undergo expiation. Um, such is the ritual for every eruptive affection, for skulls, for an eruption on a cloth or a house, for swellings or rashes, or for discolorations, to determine when they are impure and when they are pure. Such is the ritual concerning sara'at, zot, torat, hatsara'at. This is the Torah of Sarat. Okay? So it's closing out a bunch of categories that are dealing with Sarat. Then we're then 15 goes on to talk about, okay, well, what about other kinds of things that render one impure that have to do with the body that are not Sarat? Right? And that's when we get into discharge from the male member or from uh, vaginal discharge. Both render a person impure. Um, all I'll say about that business is that those of us who are familiar with mikvah and are familiar with uh, family purity laws in the rabbinic system that are maintained in the Orthodox community to this day, I want to be extremely clear. There is a higher level of impurity communicated for a man having an unnatural, unnormal, abnormal discharge from the penis than for menstruation. Why do I care about saying that out loud? Because the only one that was retained in family purity was menstruation. And therefore there is this idea that menstruation always communicated some kind of higher level of tum'ah, of impurity than other stuff. It is not true. So, and so someone else argued, well, wow, women were cut off from the sancta for a lot of their lives because they're menstruating every month. 
But then someone else raised, this isn't Kami Kalski's commentary, someone else raised the point, uh, yeah, well, how many times do men have wet dreams, masturbate, or have sex? A lot more than women menstruate. So it is very possible that men were in a ritual state of impurity and cut off from the Santa even more often than women. <laughs> so um, it depends on the culture you live in and, you know what is repressed and what's considered normal. Um, But so I guess I just want to leave us with that, that it is rabbinic. It is later. It is definitely misogyny. I do not hide from those things. You know me. Um, It is not biblical. It is simply not there biblically. Discharge from a vagina or a penis are treated exactly sort of the same way because for menstruation she menstruates for seven days right so it, it is different in its length um but so she's impure for that time whereas a man is only impure till evening um if he um masturbates let's say um, or has intercourse but but in terms of but it is treated exactly the same way in terms of it it, it renders one impure one and and a woman by the way is not in torah told she must bathe men must when they're impure, women are not told they have to bathe. The rabbis read that in. They say, well, duh, right? You know, it's like that arguing from absence, right? Well, how, how do, why, why would you say, because it's not there that a woman has to bathe? Well, duh. If, if men have to bathe because they're impure, well, duh, women have to. It didn't have to be stated. Do women not go into the mikvah after their menstrual period? Now? No, it, we don't know what was done. Women in this part of Leviticus, it is not said that she must bathe. Not there. So the rabbis read it in here and say it's here, but it's not here. Well, of course, of course. But that's my job is to keep the rest of Judaism honest right about it and i'm not saying they can't say that a woman has to do that i'm not saying they can't say that or require that i'm saying ah you know me if we're if we're dealing with the torah text i at least want to take torah on its own terms and if the rabbis want to change the rules that's fine but i want to be honest and clear that they changed the rules um, from what it says in leviticus so in some ways leviticus was less less stacked against women vis-a-vis impurity than the rabbinic tradition. We usually think it's like this, this linear progression in thinking. Well, guess what, right? You know, it's just not so that we move through periods, you know, of progress and we move through periods of reaction and we move through periods of forward moving and we move backwards lots of times too. And so the rabbinic moves in many ways were backwards moves for women. Um, vis-a-vis these these uh, laws and rituals and rites and practices. Was Leviticus considered a liberalization of uh, what existed uh, prior uh, in the culture? That's a question. Mark's asking, it was, was Leviticus considered a liberalizing of what was going on at the time? We don't, I don't know, other people might, I don't know so much about what other ancient Near Eastern cultures were doing in terms of what exactly their laws were about purity and impurity. So I don't know that answer. There may be scholars who do know. I don't know how much literature we have that's this specific 
from the ancient world vis-a-vis um, purity and impurity. I don't know. We know we have lots of evidence from the anthropological field about menstruants communicating some kind of otherness, right? So menstrual huts were right about this, that women who were menstruating were separated and no one could pick up their plates, you know, like, so, so I definitely, I know it's there. I don't, I don't know if, if it was as egalitarian in other systems as this seems to be right. That a wet dream would render a man as impure as a menstruate. Richard. And then Jody. Sorry, something that just occurred to me is that all of this text is following a line that says, when you enter the land of Canaan. And so that means that presumably a lot of the houses are Canaanite houses and not Israelite houses, because when the Israelites are coming, the people are going to be fleeing and they're going to be leaving all their stuff behind, including their houses. So is it possible that a lot of this plague stuff on the houses has to do with things that are left behind as opposed to things that the Israelites built. Beautiful, Richard. Beautiful insight that these houses are not Israelite houses. Many of the structure, well, in our story, (laughs) those houses would not be Israelite houses because in our story, the people conquer the land and take those houses. We know that is not what happened, but that's the story. So yes, according to the story, those houses are not Israelite houses. So is there possibly something in the house that predates Israelite occupation that renders the house one that gets Sarat? That is exactly where Smokler is going, but not where you took it. Um, so Let's see. I want you to answer your own question once we read some of the commentaries on Sarah on the house. Okay, Jody. Okay, so I was wondering two things. One about the house. If there's Sarah on the Sarah on the house, is it like mold? What we now say is mold. Um, and the other thing is getting to the discharges of the penis. Maybe they're talking about if something's abnormal. Maybe they're not talking about nocturnal emissions or masturbation. Maybe they're talking about if it looks funny, if it, I I don't know, um, if it's green or something. I don't know. Maybe when they say an abnormal discharge of the penis and the vagina, maybe they're referring to something other than masturbation and Jody, Jody, I'm happy to answer. Both are covered. Both are there. Regular seminal emissions render a man impure. When he ejaculates in a woman, it renders him and her impure. Wow. So it is both normal seminal emission and abnormal discharge. Menstruation is normal it still renders someone impure. So it, it okay. both, both happen, um, but it, it is very clear in the text. Okay. Normal and abnormal. And, and both, are, both are talked about and both are covered for both men and women. 
And what do you think about the mold thing? Well, I mean, we can guess all the day long about what it actually is, right? It doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, probably, yes. It was probably mildew, mold, something, right? But we, we don't know. What it is is something that looks like what happens on the skin when a person has sarat. So, I mean, I, I'm not... I'm not a scientist, but, I, but I'm sure people could tell you, right, what might happen to a clay plastered wall, right, that could cause that. Okay, thanks. Okay. To, look, to look like that. Okay. So, um, uh, so we're going to uh, Aaron Lieb Smokler, Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler now. So I'm going to share screen. And she's going to pick up this idea of Sara'at on the house. So she's, she's quoting this Fatimet. This is a, a teaching from IJS that I get every week that I study with my Chabuta partner. Um, and this is, she, she's the teacher this year and she always brings something from the Fatimet. You've heard me talk about the Fatimet a lot. I love the Fatimet. Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, Ger, the Gerer Rebbe. People were called by the name of their most famous work. His most famous work was the Sfat Emet, the language of truth. And so people call him the Sfat Emet. So you might call somebody named Tolstoy the war and peace, right? Or whatever, you know, so people were called by, our scholars were called by their greatest works. He's called the Sfat Emet, Rabbi Yehudu Leib of Ger. And so he, so this it's complicated. I, I don't want to walk through the whole thing. We don't have time. Um, but but I'm just try to hang with me. I promise I'll stop if it, if it gets, if it feels confusing. So I want to pick up on her quote here at the second paragraph, last part of that paragraph, last quote. When you come to the land, says God, I will place a lesion on the house, right? That's what we just read. Picking up on this surprising prescription, Rashi offers, our classic commentator Rashi, offers the following Midrashic explanation. So, so she's going, so she and the Sfatimet look at Rashi. Rashi looks at the Midrash. What does the Midrash say about this verse? Vayikra Rabbah, right? That's the work of Midrash on Vayikra, an early Midrash on Vayikra. What does it say? It says about our verse, and I place a lesion of Tzara'at. This is good news for them that lesions of Tzara'at will come upon them because the Amorites had hidden away treasures of gold inside the walls of their houses during the entire 40 years that the Israelites were in the desert, Richard Rajay. And through these lesions, the priest will demolish the house and find them. Okay. So... So we're going to drop down to uh, the next page. This, and you can read all this on your own. Bert is going to uh, attach this as always for you to the podcast, and he will highlight what I'm reading for you because he loves you people. The Sfatimet surfaces a compelling set of questions about this elaborate, esoteric, destructive process. Remember, we read it's closed up for seven days, then it's scraped and those stones are taken out. Then if that doesn't, then the whole thing is taken apart and then dismantled and taken outside the city. 
If it's so clear as Parashi that what appears to be an affliction is actually a blessing in disguise, why such a complicated and elongated procedure to arrive at its revelation? If it was treasures that God wanted to bestow upon the Jewish people, why do it by way of affliction? And why on houses? Right? If God wanted people to the people to have the gold and treasure of the Amorites, why not just figure out a way to do that? It's God, after all. God could do that however God wanted. Why this whole business with affliction and a week and waiting and closing it up and then coming back and scraping this and coming back? Right? What, what, why all this to put the Ammonite treasure in Israelite hands? His answer. Truly, the whole idea of plagues on homes is a great wonder. It is a sign of the holiness of the Israelites that they bring holiness and purity to the places in which they reside. The walls of a person's home testify. I don't love this translation. Chikorot betoshel adam ma'idin. That the walls of a person's home testify. They witness. It doesn't say to sin. Whoever translated this assumes that. I'm sure, yes, to sin, but also to good things, right? The walls of a person's home testify. They are witnesses to what happens inside that home. All the more so for good acts of the righteous bring a feeling of holiness to all that belongs to them, animate or inanimate. So the walls testify either way, but how loud must their testimony be when people act righteously in private, right? that everything a person owns, everything in their physical space and living things are impacted by the purity of people who act righteously behind closed doors. Beautiful. Sarat can afflict things even, I'm looking to see if I'm supposed to cover this part. Yes, Sarat afflicts things, even inanimate things, because objects carry the spiritual conditions of their owners. We human beings have the wondrous capacity to shape the environment around us for good or for bad. The energy that we exude and surely the actions that we take get lodged in the stuff that we surround ourselves with. We can sacralize things or we can soil them. We can elevate them or we can desecrate them. Our belongings tell the story of to whom and to what we belong. Think of your favorite heirloom that you own for just one second. There's nothing special about a cup, right? There's, There's nothing special about the cup. Why do we treasure the cup or the ring? It's because it was around a person that, that we love, that we want to remember, even if we have complicated feelings about them, right? When I use my grandmother's china, it was on the table surrounded by generations of my family before me, even people I didn't know. It sucked up what was going on around that table, says this line of thinking. And that's one of the reasons we cherish them. Right? Everything you make, Judith, every piece of jewelry you make, when people put it on, when we put on what you've made, right? It is it is not just because it's beautiful. It's because you made it with such care and you are who you are. That is why we love wearing it so much. So it is 
right? This is, this is not foreign to us as a concept. What I love is that it's here in our traditional commentary about Sarah on a house. Gotta love the promise. Richard? Okay, so we have to think that this happens more often than like once every 10 years or 20 years. This must happen fairly Sarat often. It's all right on the house, okay. right? Because it because we have all these details as to what to do. But if you have this sort of new community of Israelites, they're all living in a bunch of these houses. Don't you think that if somebody breaks open their walls and finds gold in there that you're going to have mass destruction of all houses at the same time. Like let's, let's all go look what's fined in these yeah. houses. That's where a little willing suspension of disbelief comes in. <laughs> this is an interpretation. Oh, right. Right. But, 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 and I don't know that just tearing apart your house would have been I mean, this had to be because there's Sarat on the wall and the priests have to come see it and the priests have to testify. And then you have to watch it. Like there's this whole process. It's not just like we can, we're allowed to just like tear apart the house on a regular Thursday. So one of the questions that this brings up for me is what makes a house or a home or a space unholy? Well, and one of the, what this is saying the actions that happen. Right. And one of the things I would come back to, although I know you didn't want to talk about this is Lashon Hurrah, that what is spoken in a house, okay, that what is spoken in a house, how people within a house deal with each other can make the house Tame or Tahor or, or pure on another spiritual level. Yes. Yes. For sure. And this for me is one of the reasons, and I, and I don't think it's just for me, I think it's for the tradition. It's, it's one of the reasons for the mezuzah, right, that we're going to talk about in why do we do that? Um, but one of the reasons for the mezuzah, for me, and, and for the way I was taught also, was that when you, when you go out into the world from your home, you want to take the values of what you're taught at home out into the world. And when you go out into the world, you want to come back and behave in your private life where you're not seen by anyone but your family in a way that you wouldn't mind the rest of the world seeing. So you kind of bring the rest of the world with you. And when you go out, you take the values right of your family out into the world and hope to behave in line with those values, no matter what else is going on in the world. Mark? Uh, you know, I was just wondering whether these uh, priests get paid for each visit. I'm just wondering if... There was a little... The priests did not get paid for the visit. The priests got paid from the offerings, right? They were supported through the offerings that people brought. They were not paid by visit. The rabbis, however, were. So if the rabbis were called into a home because people were concerned there might be demons in their home, the rabbi would put an incantation there's, we found them. There's many of them in the in the archaeological record. Uh, incantations in Aramaic around the edge of the bowl. The rabbi had a ritual that the rabbi would do, would flip the bowl over in the corner of the room and trap the demons underneath the bowl. For that, the rabbi was paid. So if any of you at any point feel like you need to call me over <laughs> to your apartment or your townhouse or your But you would do it for mansion. nothing. You'd do it for I, nothing, I'm sure. But a, a tip would be appreciated. 
Yes, right? Like, right. And like, who's going to do it? Because <laughs> no one in my house wants to catch the spider, I can tell you that. Um, and it winds up being me. Have you seen Judy Griffith? It winds up being me. The two of them are like in the corner. Amy? Yeah. Amy? Is, is Sheng, Sheng Fuei in the same uh, category? I can't. What did you say? Uh, is it called uh, Sheng Fuei? Uh, uh, Feng Shui, I got it backwards. Feng Shui, is that a similar kind of process? Um, yeah, I believe there are, you know, terrestrial human culture, right? That there are some things we understand to be, you know, another level of how we relate to our physical environment. I think absolutely feng shui is one of those, it's another tradition's way of relating to the physical environment and and how that interacts with us on an energetic or spiritual level. Absolutely. Yes. Is there... Is there any interpretation that you're aware of that instead of talking about gold or treasure in the walls, it could be old Amorite uh, idols? No. Okay. That would not be a blessing. But it could could cause, in other words, they have to get them out of the house. The Amorites left them in the house. Uh they were say 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 you have a clay idol hidden in the walls because the Canaanites were hiding them from the oncoming Israelites. They're left in the wall, they start decaying or whatever, and they cause the stain. So whoever's imagining the Amorites running away did not imagine that. They imagined them hiding their gold. And the American Indians burn herbs in a room sure. to clear it of evil sure. spirits. Sure. Sage. All right, smudging. All right. So returning to the Rashi's opening claim about the good tidings of Tzara'at, the Rebbe concludes. So now we're with the Sfatimet. And he says, Vizot Tova. This is the good news. You ready, people? You thought it was only outside of Judaism, but it's not. Here is the good news. That all physical places can be rehabilitated. This is the treasure that in all physical things are hidden sparks of holiness. The more earthly, the more hidden the sparks. Sarad Habayit, so Sarad on a house, helps us see the good news that our entire physical world, from the stuff we accumulate to the clothing we wear to the walls we surround ourselves with, can be part of a great tikkun, a rectification and redemption of the spiritual world. We can find wholeness in and through things. This is why I shop on ThreadUp. This is why I go thrifting in Ventura. It is a way, right, to do a tikkun through the fact that I have to get dressed anyway. I have to wear clothes anyway, but I like to wear clothes that are expressive of me and not of whatever's in Macy's right now. Thank you very much. Um, as they've been hideous for the last like 10 years. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, but right, but also it means when I go shopping for clothes, I'm recycling. Somebody else is, is encouraged to clear out their closet. And if you go to Ventura and do all your shopping there at the thrift stores, it is all going to a good cause. Battered women, neglected children, beaten up animals. It's very depressing, actually, as a walk through our society, but you get really good stuff. 
at a really good price, right? So I save money, I recycle, I encourage people to clean out their closets of stuff they don't want, and it helps good causes. This is like just one one way of understanding our interactions with the physical world can be a tikkun, can be a repair. Those of us who you know are careful about what we consume and how we consume and what we'll buy and what we don't buy and why. These are all ways that our tradition actually affirms that that is a form of tikkun. And every time we make a decision like that, and every time we make a choice like that, when we interact with the physical world, we are bringing something of repair into this world. And it's so easy to despair. Looking at how much plastic I recycle, right? Which I know most of it does not get recycled um, because no one's buying that commodity anymore. Um, in my looking my recycling bin, it's it's very depressing. But the rabbis, I think, are very serious about. But if we really make an effort, and every time we we exercise that effort and are successful, it is a measure of tikkun, and it's a corrective, I think, for our learned helplessness and our sense of why bother. It's all too big anyway. You know, there's too much. Anyway, I'm not really going to impact that much. So what does it really matter? I think this is an important spiritual correction to that, an antidote to that. There is still a question left unanswered, however. Why does the Torah prescribe such a convoluted purification process? What is the meaning of the multi-staged ritual designed to expose what is already known to be a treasure? So kind of to your point. You know, like, why not just rip down the walls, right? Like, you know, we already know it's there. Why do we have to go through all this mumbo jumbo? To answer this, let us turn to the writings of a later Hasidic Rebbe, Rebbe Kalanimus Kalman Shapira, 89 to 43, known as both the Piazetzner Rebbe and the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto. So met a very, very horrible end. All right. In his book, Eish HaKodesh, the Piazetzner explains that even when something is Latova, meaning for the good, even when it will reveal itself over time as an occasion for opening or healing or clarity, we must still pause to really honor the uncertainty and the pain that process so often inflicts. No matter how many explanations we might arrive at to make the disorientation, quote, worth it, no matter how many ways we might have to retrospectively redeem or recontextualize that which unsettles in the here and now, I'm sorry, that which unsettles in the here and now, it just hurts. It is anguish or inconvenience or isolation or confusion. So for seven days, we hold that and then some. We suspend speculation about the meaning of things. We resist resolution and we just sit Shiva for the loss and the insecurity that comes from that. We mourn for the ways in which we've been uprooted. We breathe, cry, just pause. And then, only then, might we be prepared to reveal the blessings that lay hidden deeply, sometimes very deeply, inside of such experiences. I want to unpack this with you, but I want to finish out Pia Zetzner. So, uh, so this is his quote. So therefore, a person says, it's something like 
Sara'at that's appeared to me in the house. Kenega near Ali. It it seems to me to be like a Sara'atish lesion. Even if he is a scholar and knows the exact definition of a leprous mark, he must still use the phrase like a lesion. For as we said above, a person is never able to tell whether what is happening to them is a blessed challenge or a meaningless injury. All the person can say is that it looks like an affliction. Even if the truth, as the Torah announces, is that what God is doing for us is for the good of Israel. A person locked in his or own heart, hurt, their own hardship or doubt or confounding disappointment can never really know what lies on the other side of it. The Torah does not ask us to leapfrog over that pain or to explain it away, but rather to sit with it and wait. To honor what is real in the moment. The treasures behind the walls will likely come, says the Rebbe, but only with time and a little bit of breaking down. Kenega, like a lesion, one can never fully know God, nor can one ever know one's fate. The faithful stance asks only that we open up space to pause and to sit with the raw reality of irresolution. The, the amazing thing about the Pietzina's teaching there was the day was written, like yeah. around 43. So here he is in the middle of the well, Holocaust. We don't know when it was written. But it was. We don't know that it was written during the Holocaust. But in the age, in the book, exploding, that was written contemporaneous. That was written contemporaneous. So on one page is what he, the Pietzina taught. On the parallel page was a commentary of what was actually going on that day. So it was during the war for so sure. Was, okay. Which is what amazing about you know, any study of resilience, right, that, that, that people can, can hold what they're holding and continue to, to, to right, to, well, not even just hope, but to, to continue to be positive about anything and to have positive insights and positive um, uh, things to say, right, and teachings about how to live in, in a way that is, that is not so co- completely colored by what was happening around them. But the ish... So, but these are his teachings, right? So, but is it from the time of the war or is it his teaching on one side and a diary on the other? Yes. A a question regarding what you started with, that we don't go in a linear manner. The way that we do the thirds of the Torah, does that contribute to this way of understanding that things are not linear necessarily? I think it can. I think it does. I think it can, yeah. And, and clearly for you, it does. That's, so that's one of the other benefits of it. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about this teaching um, is that I, one of the things I find the most annoying and like really deeply, deeply annoying is when people want to jump in to tell you how there's a silver lining to whatever it is that's happening for you that feels really hard for me. I hate it when people tell me the silver lining of whatever I'm going through and that this is for the good. Ultimately, they're saying this is Latova, right? You know, you're in the hospital. At least you're not at work. Like, 
So we, yes, eventually I can look back and hold something that's been hard for me, infertility, right? Like a horrible C-section. There are things I can look back and hold and say, it was Latova. It was for the good, right? The, the pain, the agony, the whatever helps me in some ways appreciate maybe even more that I have this child because there are days God knows I need the help appreciating that. <laughs> so, um, and so I, lo- I love her to death, you know, that. so um, she, you know, so, but it's, it's somewhat else telling a person that there's some way this is for Latova that is dismissive of the pain and dismissive of the irresolution and dismissive of the suffering and dismissive of the doubt and dismissive of the uprooting that happens for a person when they're going through something that is really difficult to hold. And we don't always know it's Latova. There isn't always a lesson on the other side. There is often just that really sucked. And I hope that never, ever, ever happens again. And I'll do anything that I can to make sure that never happens again. But even if it's gonna be eventually for the good, first of all, only that person can be the one to get there. And only they know when it's time for that. And I feel like we as a society, we, we want it to be for the good. And so we don't want to sit with the pain. And we certainly don't want to sit with someone else's pain and someone else's discomfort about what they're going through. And so for me, this is an incredibly important teaching that, um, that I'm, so, I'm always so happy to find this in our tradition, right? That these were our teachers. These were our masters. These were master teachers. These were people who had a lot of students. And it just, it makes me so gratified, right, to find these kinds of teachings um, in our tradition and that they can get there from leprosy on the walls of a house, people. If that isn't talent, like, I don't know what it is. George. Yes, I, I agree with most of what you said. But I, I do want to say that one can, let us take cancer. That you suffer and you have pain, okay? And you're, but then you need a diagnosis. Uh, once you get the diagnosis, there's a deep depression or what have you. But there's also optimism that there may be a treatment for it. Uh, so I'm just want to keep some optimism in your outlook. Yeah, but <laughs> wait. Okay, so you just did it to me. Yes. You just did it yes. to me. Why do you do that? What is that instinct? What if I'm told it's terminal? What optimism am I supposed to have? And what if I'm told, what if Judy Griffith is told she has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? It's treatable. Well, can't there be some time where she doesn't want to hear that? Where she she just goes, this cancer? Me? Now? Really? Can't there be a time where it's just (laughs) awful? Yes. That's what the Zetzner are saying. Yes. And that's that's what, the sitting what, with it. That's the waiting. That's the discomfort. That's the pain, the fear, the whatever. We oh. can get to, thank God, it's the kind that's treatable, and I've yes. not been told I'm terminal. But that doesn't come right away. That's why he says there's this oh. whole elaborate ritual, because there has to be time to just sit with the dislocation and the disruption and the regret and uh i hate this 
Yes. I don't I, want this. I agree. And one of the states, Oregon, I think, just allowed uh, people, they used to, the law used to be you had to be a resident to get self-assisted suicide. They have just opened that uh, for people to come in who are indeed uh, in terminal condition. Right. Because for some people, that's where the hope yes. lies. Yes. Is that I can control. Right at least that I won't die in agony horribly yeah. slowly, right? And so it's not that optimism doesn't come. I think the Pia Zetzner is saying that's what he reads into this whole elaborate, close it up for seven days, then take this little bit out. And that a little bit of at a time we might can get there, but that we need some time to sit shiva, right? For our cancer-free body. We need to sit shiva for that. And just be with that. And I think that is just so wise and and important and and counter-cultural. Like, it's at least in our American pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps culture. Sure. I, I do think I'm going to speak out on behalf of the person who's trying to comfort the other person. I hear what you're saying. And that often when someone is optimistic, the other person hears it as you don't really, you're not listening to me. You don't know how much I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the person who's suffering needs to hear that the other person is trying to love them. And perhaps the other person is misguided, but the other person is trying to say, perhaps with the wrong words, I'm here for you. I love you. We'll make it okay. But Ms. Zetzner's teaching is to us. I don't need to hear anything in what you say to me. Thank you very much. Right? What you said was the person needs to hear that. No, they don't. No, I didn't say they need to hear that. I, I, I said that the person who is trying to comfort mm-hmm. may be doing it the wrong way. Correct. Okay. But nevertheless, is coming from a place of love. Correct. So the that's, all, that's Zetz- the only point. Right. The Pia Zetzner is only saying to us, the Pia Zetzner, the PSS is not saying to somebody, reject somebody who's trying to sit lovingly with you, even if you don't like what they're saying. The PSS is talking to us. Next time you sit with someone, right, who's in a hard place, maybe don't rush to tell them this is Latova. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I, I, judging or asking us to judge that people are not coming from a good place. He's trying to teach us to be more responsive and to understand where the other person is coming from actually enter with someone into their place rather than trying to move them to a place we are more comfortable with that is actual love not that the other person isn't who says something else isn't intending to be loving but he's trying to teach us how to actually be loving right which is the job of of the spirit of a tradition right of of to leave space Give someone the space to suffer. Absolutely. And, and to have the, the courage and the strength and the determination to sit with our own discomfort that comes up. Because that's why people say that stuff. It's not for the other person so they feel better. That's not why they're doing it. They do it because they feel uncomfortable sitting with somebody who's in pain or afraid or depressed or whatever. They don't like the feeling that comes up in them. And so they they are quick to try to move someone to a different place so they don't have to sit with someone else's discomfort. Ask anybody who trains anybody in any kind of care, and they'll tell you this. We can't ever feel someone else's pain. We only feel our own. That's the only kind of pain we can feel. So when we sit with somebody else and we get uncomfortable, it's not because of their pain. 
it's because we don't like what it brings up in us and we're rushing to actually deal with that and that by definition is moving away from being with whatever's happening for another person and that takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength and a lot of love and a lot of self-care and a lot of therapy to get to a place where you can hold that with someone and be a calm non-anxious presence Yes, I've ex- sure. tried to explain to my son uh, what uh, do not resuscitate means in my medical care and extremely difficult. And I've, I've gone through it on the other end also and extremely difficult. Right. Uh, for, for him. For him. It's extremely for, difficult for, for him. him to imagine honoring your wishes yes, of not absolutely. resuscitating his father. Yes. Right. That's the example of the hardest it gets to actually put ourselves where somebody else is and right honor what their experience is. One of the very first clinical aphorisms I ever learned was don't just do something, sit there. Right? Don't just do something, sit there. Right? Clinic, that, that, that's a clinical, right? it's a guiding principle. Don't just do something, sit there. But the, the brilliance of uh, this teaching is that it takes something we're familiar with, Shiva, seven days, and takes it to the spiritual realm of holding what's almost impossible and, to be held. And honors the losses that we suffer all the time. Right. All the time. I don't want to be somebody who can get C. diff again really easily because now I've had it. I don't want to be somebody who has diverticulosis. Thank you very much. It takes time to grieve that I don't have that. Well, I do now. And that is not, I mean, it, the, the Shiva process is a process. And, and I agree with you. I love that he moves Shiva into, there are so many losses we have to mourn or not have to. There's so many losses that we, that we are invited to process and part of the processing is mourning. There are so many people I see in my office sitting on my couch who do not label what's happening for them as grief. And the minute I say it, so many of them start to cry. It's like you're grieving what didn't happen. You're grieving what can't be now. I did it when my mother died. It hit me like a freight train. I was brought to my knees with grief, which I was completely unprepared for. I wasn't prepared for grief about what now couldn't possibly be. It hadn't happened in my whole life. Why was it going to happen now? But there's right there. We don't, we can't explain like when and how grief, grief, grief grips us. What we can do is, is honor it and, and, and let us be there for each other. Right. That's, that's, Ultimately, that, that's the part of the process that is healing, is, is being with each other in it, honoring and recognizing it in one another, and having the courage both to share it with other people, our own sense of loss and grief, as well as to um, sit with others in it, and eventually, hopefully, to figure out what is the meaning of this, if not Latova, because I don't always think it's Latova, y'all know me. I don't think it's Latova all the time. I can sit with and hopefully get to a place where what is the meaning of this in my life? And that changes everything. I don't have to like it. 
but this is the meaning, right? Ask me in there, in the social hall twice a week, the meaning of warrior two. It's torture. It's just torture, right? But, right, Lisa knows, she's yelling at the screen, right? It's torture, right? But it's, it does have meaning to sit with that burning and that pain and make it through it, And right? Do I like it? No. Do I like what it does in my life that I can hold that and sit with that and be with that? Yes. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.